clubhouse. Welcome back to the How Uncivilized podcast from a galaxy far, far away in the studio at, I don't know, Tashi Station or wherever we are. This is Paul. Hey, Mark here. Good to be here with you in person, Paul. In person. It's not that we don't know each other in person. It's just that we never see each other (laughs) in person. Post-pandemic, what, what? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Here to talk about the fifth episode of Andor. This one is called The Axe Forgets. Uh, At first blush... I was really hoping that there'd be more action in this episode. However, upon some reflection and some rewatching, the depth of the characters and the parallels that they're making to each other and all the setup that's happening in this episode, I really enjoyed it. What did you what did you think? Mark? Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, jumping into action would be, you know, the Star Wars way. And that's what makes this one different. It was, it was like that we got the calm before the storm. We got a lot of the rebel detention between the rebels. I liked that playing out. I think there was a big theme of like PTSD. Mm-hmm. And because that, that title, The Axe Forgets, got grabbed me right away. I was like, oh, that's cool. I was like, what does that mean? And then they dropped us with the dialogue pretty quick into it, where it was like, The Axe Forgets, but the tree remembers. Yeah. You know, that was cool. It ties directly to Skeen and his brother, the former owner of, of a large crop of, of trees. You could see where that kind of the, that tree metaphor, allegory kind of stuff would be a big deal in his culture, his family. But when you start to spread that out to the whole rest of the story, you start to look for other axes and other trees, right? So like in some ways, Cyril is a tree and Andor was the axe that screwed up his life. Mm, (laughs) Yeah, good point. (laughs) You know, there are other parallels here. Like I saw someone point out that this story really resembles a lot of the first Matrix movie. At least the the journey that Neo goes goes on. Oh, explain that. That's that's interesting. Well, he has to give up his former life in order and kind of go all in with this new crew where there are different parallels, you know, like Nemec is a lot like, not Dozer, what's the... Oh, so the mouse analogy was right yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. And Luthen is clearly Morpheus. Yeah. And you, the, know? And you have uh, various people on the team that sort of make little parallels, except got to wonder, is there a cipher? Oh, good yeah. call, a cipher. And then he's interested in um, uh, who Cinta is sharing a blanket with, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> right. Something's happening there. There's <laughs> right. a little bit of a, I think Vel figured out there's a crush going on there. So that could be Trinity. Maybe. If you will. Maybe. Although uh, my gut doesn't think Cinta's long for this show, but I don't know. That was, that's why we watch the show, right? Well, your gut is pretty good because you called the whole thing with uh, Mon Mothma's husband because yeah. we got some more. We, we were good. We're jumping the gun. But that's, I was like, oh man, Paul nailed that one. That guy and daughter. Ah, uh, man. I mean, we. No respect. Uh. Exactly. As people who grew up in the 80s, you and I probably share this image of Mon Mothma as this stoic leader who no one, no one in that room of rebels, carrying blasters, their admirals, their their generals, they are Princess Leia, you know, no one would give this woman lip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? She's hardcore. Yeah. But then here she is with her family and they are complete dicks to her. And maybe they're even right. You know, the idea of the daughter sort of being like this window dressing to help her political career. You're only doing it to show off. What? Just go. She didn't defend that point in a way that was like, she just said, oh, that's hurtful. 
That's just so hurtful. See? There you go. But she didn't necessarily say, you're wrong. No way, Jose. I love my daughter and my, you know, robe-wearing husband. This is, this is appalling. No, she didn't say that exactly. Oh, just, that's hurtful. She's like got the absentee parent thing going on, but at the same time, the guy seems like very superficial. Yeah. Like he's going with the flow. Like being with married to an important person, perhaps. But yeah, exactly. But that we could talk about that scene when um, he basically was like, oh, I was talking to so-and-so. I don't know if that Gar something or other. You saw me talking to Gar on time for you. Mm, you're busy tonight. I don't Is that someone we know? Um, he said he was talking to Gar Toffeed. You know, Toffeed? I'll admit that I watched Star Wars Theory before okay. preparing for this podcast. And that, like that guy, guy doesn't know who he is. Although, nobody. So, right. <laughs> yeah, if he doesn't know, nobody knows. Okay. But yeah, she said, uh, he said that this person was telling, telling about the foundation. He's like, what's up with this foundation? Yes. So clearly I would guess this is where, how she's siphoning funds through some sort of fake charity shell company. I got the same feeling. Did you get the feeling? And he this was seems like, late in the game to be creating like an owl sanctuary uh, foundation. Yeah. <laughs> and he was very much like, how come you didn't tell me about this? And, she right. was like, and, and then she terrible. tried to, right. yeah, she tried to talk it off, so, you know, spin it off, but that's some good tension right there. Are these two, can they get with the program? Are they just making her too vulnerable? Do they have to exit in some way in order to let Mon Mothma be who she needs to be to lead the rebellion? I personally think they're too far off program. I mean, this, I understand that we're creating, instead of characters, we're trying to see these people as like people, as opposed to a lot of Star Wars shows where it's archetypes or whatever, but mm -hmm. they're going a long way to show us people here. So it's tough to say, you know, just cast off those those jerks, but I don't know. I mean, this is bigger than them. You got to think the risk is going to get at some point too high and she's going to have to exit stage left and just go all in with the rebellion. Yeah. And at their various rebel bases, I guess, Dantooine. Is that where the, that's where the. That's one. That's one. That it's we deserted see. by there's, A New Hope, but yes. So maybe there's some catalyst that brings her to exiting. And maybe you're right. Maybe the Empire is ruthless enough to bring her family into it. They, they're spying on her. I think they might give us that in the show. We'll see. Well, you recall in A New Hope, Tarkin comes in and says, you know, the Emperor's done away with the. Um, the Imperial Senate. The Imperial he did Senate. It. He finally did it. The rebellion will continue to gain a support in the Imperial Senate. The, the Imperial Senate will no longer be of any concern to us. I have just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. So I wonder what that looks like, because we know how he gets rid of things. It's usually a cleansing. Mm. Um, the Night of the Long Knives type deal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you never know. So does Mon Mothma read the writing on the wall and get out of there while the getting's good? Obviously she does because she survives to Return of the Jedi. And if, you, and if you've read both Legends and Disney era books, she goes on. She, you know, she, I think she, she becomes the leader of the New Republic in both uh, iterations of the, of the galaxy. But what happens to the senators and how she makes that exit I'm going to be interested to see. I know like early on Star Wars received some criticism for well, who cares about the politics in Star Wars? Well, I think as fans like us get older, mm. we're, start, we're starting yeah, to. It's a little bit relevant, a <laughs> little bit interesting. It's, it's interesting to see how that stuff plays out. And I know like, I guess I think it was Revenge of the Sith, Yoda or Obi-Wan, you know, or maybe it was Bail Organa say, you know, the emperor doesn't have enough control to dissolve the Senate. Because mm -hmm. they were going to sneak in and turn off the message that was the trap to lure Jedi into the temple. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, they don't have that. But that's what they're trying to do as an empire, right? 
you see the annexation of the uh, Morlana, right? Yeah, exactly. So we're in the middle of that power grab. Right. Even though they were the Republic and they kind of changed names, they changed uniforms, that apparatus is still there that existed with the same kind of people in charge, you know, and so they're swapping out, you know, I want my guy in charge, that era of, of things. But like you're pointing out, they're not, quote unquote, the empire that we know from A New Hope and that era of the story yet. They're still getting that authoritarian control. And that's the genius of George Lucas. I mean, he took the 20th century that he grew up in and said, I want to tell a story about how does someone like uh, Hitler or something come to power? And that's, you know, Palpatine. How do they manipulate in the back rooms politically to pull something like that off? And he spun such a spider web, like literally the imagery in the Death Star, you know, looks like a spider web because Palpatine is just engineering all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then and then, this, then you get into the backstory of the Sith and their plan of revenge. And so I love that we're seeing a smaller story, but it's in the context of Palpatine up here doing his thing. Well, with the uh, Luthans, little yeah. bit of story yeah, here, yeah, yeah. how he's very nervous. Did you happen to notice as a side comment, did you happen to notice that he had both a Jedi holocron and a Sith holocron just next to each other on his shelf. I didn't notice that, but I did watch Theory's uh, recap. And so I saw, oh, I missed that. So that is cool. Very interesting. They look big, though. They looked bigger than I would have thought. Like, so maybe they're artistic representations Mm -hmm. of those things. I mean, we know from past interviews that Tony Gilroy does not come to the universe as a Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. He, He has had to study up. Prop you know. department might have messed that one up. <laughs> well, or or just this isn't a Jedi story. I don't know. I'm I'm just conjecture. I, they're not as important. They're just very cool to notice in the background, though, because they could have done more depth of field. They could have made that fuzzier. Speaking of that scene, he said, uh, "Yeah, you know, you got your bug out bag ready, basically. Basically, yeah, on the Fondor, and that was one of the. I don't know. Is that a planet? Do you know? It is a planet, but I guess that's the name of his ship, perhaps. See, I was I was wondering because Dedra is it Dedra? Okay. She's making the connections about the rebels. Um, and she mentioned they've had all this stolen equipment. Too random to be random. Yeah. Yeah, too random to be random. That was awesome. I know this. If I was them, this is how I'd do it. I'd spread it out. Never climb the same fence twice. It's too random to be random. But she mentioned a bunch of planets and she mentioned Fondor as well. The mm-hmm. same name. And I was like... Hmm, that is an is... important planet in Star Wars. You notice they keep mentioning Hosni and Prime also? Yeah, what's the deal? What is the background on that? Well, Hosni and Prime is in the sequel era of an important planet because it's one of the planets where the government, the New Republic, resides in like a rotating basis, right? So they didn't want to have another Coruscant. They wanted lots of planets to feel involved in the new government. So that's the system that got blown up in the sequel trilogy. It then. is because ah, that right, is okay. where that is where if you notice when Starkiller Base shoots and it, all the rays kind of diverge, they're all going to those planets where the government had been set up. But the but the current iteration was actually on Hosnian Prime. So they blew up Hosnian Prime with all of the leadership on it in that era. So here it's still relevant because it you know, still exists. But <laughs> but uh, it's I think it's meant to be kind of an Alderaan, you know, uh, a nice place. People want to go there. They got industry. They've got things that people want. They got a high, medium, low class people. It, it's it's not meant to be one of the one note. You know, we only manufacture. We're only a desert plant, whatever. I think it's meant to be like a, a place people want to be. 
Okay, if we parse her other planets that she mentioned, or systems, what have you. You're onto something. Kessel, Fondor, targeting consoles from Jakku, proton warheads from Base K, the Steergard star path. She mentioned Kessel. And I was thinking, wasn't the solo movie where they stole the spice in oh, the, yeah. the infamous Kessel run? Yeah. I was wondering, is that, is that what she's referring to? The stolen spice on Kessel? The timeline here, Mark sees me kind of searching my mental databanks as yeah. I look up into my <laughs> brain. Um, searching the hollow net. This is only five BBY. Solo takes place 10 to 13 years BBY. So that stuff would have happened. That would have been a while ago then. From Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. That's shortly after the Clone Wars. Not right after, but, you know, enough. Hmm. The Empire is in charge, for sure. And But Kessel has always been the source of the spice that is uh, both like a illegal drug and then also something, I guess, legitimately useful. And in every iteration, it's always been surrounded by multiple black holes that make it difficult to get to. So the idea of a Kessel run has always been a safe, fast route through the black holes rather than getting sucked in and, you know, no one ever hears from you ever again. There was, and there's always been a mine there, I guess. And that's that's part of the idea. And, uh, and spice is, is valuable. Yes. Uh, they also mentioned the star path from the box that we saw from Steerguard. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, that's... And then I, I was noticing the credits and the actor that plays Luthen is... Stellan Skarsgård. Skarsgård. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I wonder if that's a, they threw that in. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was one of his uh, conditions of joining the you project. Gotta, you got to name a gadget after me. <laughs> kind of like, what was it? Was it John Stewart? We were talking about John Stewart a minute ago uh, before we started this. Was it him that asked George Lucas, what planet is Obi-Wan Kenobi from? Mm. And he said, oh, it's he's from Stewart. He so he named the planet after John Stewart. And I might be wrong. It might not have been John Stewart, but I think it was. I had not heard that, but that's funny. Yeah, it's funny. Because George has elements that he is very for sure i have written this in stone this is the way it is this is star wars to the core and there's other parts where it's like i don't give a shit whatever yeah i'll make something <laughs> up right here but you know well maybe we'll get kenobi's brother come into the picture sometime in one of these stories since mm. they dropped that on us yeah i see here that fondor is a manufacturing hub for the imperials it is a uh, orbital shipyards so a very important manufacturing planet where they don't want things to go missing or wrong Hmm. Anyhow, that scene with Luthen at the end there when his helper is is essentially saying, we can't affect it. You need to stop worrying and it, it'll all be over by this time tomorrow. There's nothing else you can do, Luthen. They're either going to be okay out there or they're not. What? That's a daring prediction. Um, and his response is like, actually, if it happens, it's all starting. Yeah, that was a great line. Tomorrow. It'll all be over this time tomorrow. Or would he just be starting? All that. And then you're like, okay, so this probably in Rebel lore is significant, right? They may, this payout right. might be so big that it jumpstarts the entire rebellion because we we know that they're kind of strapped for cash. Yes, um, there's right that, now. and we don't know how far they've gotten. We don't know who our allies are yet. We, you know, from Rogue One, there's that scene where there's all those decision makers standing around the table at Yavin trying to decide what to do. Some are like, I don't want to go. And people are like, no, we got to go. And, but most of the voices are like, no, it's not time yet. Right. You know, and a lot of those guys are 
kind of young and and the, the unnamed at least in the scene you could probably find out in like imdb or whatever but who are those people and when do they come in what do they bring with them why do we care that they're there we don't need just random guys we need guys with small armadas you know manufacturing plants weapon manufacturers that kind of thing but how do those things start to line up and when do they start to line up well like you said mm -hmm. maybe right now you know they've only been like taking names on an interest list <laughs> so far yeah. but without actual money i like this concept of the circle too you would imagine that people in the circle are running multiple kind of cells yeah out there and then they maybe eventually kind of come together when mon mothma leaves for example and, and and become more organized and more centralized i guess whereas right now they're really spread out but he we learned that he's worried that andor could be tied back to him bell's the only one who traces back no, the thief, Andor. I wasn't careful. You wanted this to happen. This is what it took. I didn't really catch exactly how he could be tied back to him. I guess maybe he was seen. That's true. We know that there is some level of surveillance. You know, we saw the Primor security running the kind of the flight paths and all that kind of stuff, but that doesn't mean they can't have cameras and that kind of thing we know like on the death star they they shot out the cameras so they must be using cameras that'd be the only way because he has the disguise he's on coruscant he's just worrying i mean this is a big deal i was interested to see that they actually had physical cash like those oh yeah those, those cylinders, cylinders of, yeah have we seen that before i want to say that's familiar but maybe not Mm. credits yeah we've seen credits we've seen and, just little yeah little pocket change almost we haven't actually seen what it looks like when you have a sector's payroll <laughs> in, in physical like, you uh, know, denominations gold bars in star wars basically yeah which is you know a little weird because this is star wars what is it, that line of what makes it fantasy what makes it technologically beyond us but then also what kind of makes it the old west which has always been there why wouldn't there be physical cash? This is this is almost like a, a holdup, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and cash has the ability, you know, as the characteristic of being anonymous and in a world where the empire is starting to be the surveillance state. Yeah, narratively, you need that anonymity for the cash. Mm -hmm. Did you catch when they said they were going to turn Adari's the planet uh, into a... Aldani? Aldani, thank you, Aldani. Man, my names are off. Uh, talk about into a airbase? Did you catch that? Like they were talking about changing it up there? I didn't catch what... Um, to do. This was when Gorn was there. Talking to the corporal. Talking to the Can corporal, you believe right. they're going to tear it all down? That that conversation. Yeah. Well, we know that this is a viable hub for moving things throughout this part of the galaxy. We know that they've been moving the indigenous people away. Perhaps this facility is too small to do what they want to do. That'd be my guess. Given what we know is about to go down, that could go either way. They may be like, nah. Forget this planet. Or they might be like, no, we need to double down. We need to make this a really big installation. I like that uh, kind of acting that Gorn did to try to still be the, you know, hardcore Imperial commander. But at the same time, when he manipulated some of his subordinates, he gave a little bit of a smirk, you know, like, yeah, yeah I tricked him. <laughs> I was going to mention that, uh, you know, part of our podcast format here is mentioning our high points and our low points. And I think my favorite stuff okay. was all Gorn especially once we got his backstory and we did start to see, now we know he's acting as an Imperial, even though he doesn't feel like an Imperial anymore. So he knows how to be a dick, obviously. 
<laughs> so, and he's just using that, but he does not, he's not of the dick anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You got to wonder how he got connected with the rebels, like how that, that came about. It's very but, thorough, you know, how uh -huh. he's like, you, I, you, you can't see the thing tomorrow because I'm going to have you paint this. And he knows he's going to cave on that, but he's got to keep up appearances. Mm -hmm. I want it painted the day after tomorrow. I'll be here midday and I expect to see it shine. Absolutely, Thanks, sir. sir. Make sure the men know how close they've come. Okay, fine, whatever. But you got to paint it early in the morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I enjoyed seeing that that acting, like you just mentioned from from Gorn. Yeah, this build up episode. I know some people were thinking hey, this is a little bit slow. There hasn't been a ton of action, but it's going to be on the next episode. I would imagine it's going to be go time, and there should be all action. I bet this next episode. Me too. But we needed some of this stuff. I could argue that you might have been able to compress the distrust mm -hmm. and the motivations into maybe last week, maybe, mm -hmm. but they spread it out. They gave everybody their due. They created this and then dismissed this concept of like, well, what are your reasons for supporting the rebellion? Are they good enough? Do they match up with mine? Do I think that they're okay? Yeah, there was a whole lot of that, maybe a little too much. But then they settled on, it doesn't matter, you're here. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's good enough for what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, and Andor called him out for being scared. Yeah. And he, he also realized they needed him because he, as a pilot, he realized he's the only one that knows certain things to make the mission a success. Do you so, think he was BSing? Well, he he lied when he told his backstory, but I just, he just knows that they need him and he could tell they're scared. Well, and there's so that. he called him out. And, he, and then that was interesting how he told him the truth. Because he realized oh, yeah. they could sense there was something off. So that I was like, going to okay. ask you, like, yeah. like if you were Andor in that spot and you know that these are all believers for one reason or another, whether it's personal revenge, whether it's philosophical, you know, I hate this and I want to change it. You know, they all seem to have their own reasons. Being a mercenary. I'm being paid. Paid to be here. You need to know? That's it. What? Yeah, I'm here for the money. Doesn't quite stack Kind of up. frowned upon. Right. But on the other hand, if he doesn't say anything, then the distrust just kind of builds, right? Yeah. And so he knows that to be successful, they have to cut this infighting. So I think telling the truth was a good call, especially he got the uh, skiing, figured out the, found the Kyber crystal. Yeah. So I was like, what the heck is this? That was a cool scene. And you see the smarts of Andor. Now they're ready to go. He's an interesting character in that it's probably been said elsewhere in fewer words, but he's not great at anything. He's a little good at a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see, especially say like superhero movies or something like that, once they go through their training montage, they turn into God <laughs> by the end of the, 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 the movie, you know, and I don't think he's ever going to be that. He can make hard decisions when he needs to. That's probably his greatest asset. And being cool under pressure, he seems really good at that. Yes. But is he probably the best shot with a rifle? Is he, you know, any number? Is he going to be the best pilot? Is he going to be able to figure out this weird slingshot thing on the on the dot the first time? I kind of doubt it. Is he going to get him aloft? Probably. Is he going to be rough? I bet so. <laughs> you know, when he was going to all the trouble of hiding the kyber crystal, I just got the sense that maybe back to the Morpheus thing, I think he might be loyal to Luthen now. He might be like a mentor to him. And he's and mm. he, he took that comment about now getting- that is Star Wars-y. Very Star Wars-y. Get that kyber crystal back to him. He asked for it. He said he gave him a mission. Mm -hmm. And I think he wants to fulfill that mission. I think he likes Luthen. He wants to be like Luthen. He eventually becomes like Luthen. 
you could even see where that treasure might turn into in lieu of payment i'll just hang on to this and go on another mission and we'll and we'll we'll settle up later mm-hmm. you know like that sort of thing because at a certain point we know our boy's gonna see the cause he's gonna want to be with the cause drink the kool-aid yes yeah yes you know as, as someone that's grown up with star wars and the idea of being someone that questions authority and wanting something better than the current government that's a funny place to be as an adult you know who actually lives in a real world with a real society but we've had this training from early on like respect that idealism you know it's it's a funny place to be and and this is like a a great story that's that's pointing out to me as just a Hmm. just a human that that's still worth doing you know what i mean Mm. you know yeah, like it, the ideals versus the cold, hard reality stuff. And yes. Star Wars is good at that. Yeah, yes. you, you get both. Well, it's better in this iteration than others. You know, some that feed my need to see jetpacks and lightsabers and cool stuff like that. So we're not going to get that here, but we are going to get that part where you're thinking about it later. Like, can I rationalize the decisions? Can I see why he made that? Yes, I, I kind of can. Yeah, Mandalorian's way more of like a fantasy story almost feeling, mm-hmm. whereas this is more grounded. Yeah, yeah. I, I stand by my like 70s cop thriller. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of the 70s, description. did you notice that the, we're calling the mouse character guy, the mouse guy? Yeah. Another, uh, the manifesto author? Yeah. I liked how he was kind of like all over the place like that. And then um, he also brought out the old school 70s tech and he kind of explained why they use that old school tech that looks very retro. Mm-hmm. One of the best navigational tools ever built can't be jammed or intercepted something breaks you can fix it yourself hard to learn yes but once you've mastered it you're free because it gets around the imperial tech which is more you know high tech they're using cheaper stuff and i was like oh that's cool because it ties into the practical reality of when they made episode four mostly in england they were they had all this weird 70s yeah you know technology that they made to look like star wars uh just like how they had mustaches in rogue one you know and they're like the way they talked was very 70s. An eagle-eyed person has called out that navigation device as a dressed up like Polaroid camera from the 70s. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Yeah. Which, if you don't know, I mean, Star Wars has been dressing up items from our world since the beginning. I mean, if you look at the rifles they were carrying, those were marginally dressed up submachine guns. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> The communicator that Obi-Wan uses in episode one, everybody knows that was a lady's shaver. Oh, uh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, and that's then this funny. is a pull. I mean, this is very on theme. Yeah. And know? the original lightsaber was like a flashbulb holder case or like a Could handle. Be. Yeah. Just kind of yeah. dressed up with little bits and bops on it. So I'm not at all disappointed to learn that that is a, a Polaroid camera just painted black with some doodads on it. But his argument resonates today in unexpected ways maybe not with say the government for me per se but like you and i offline we're talking about our affinity for virtual reality products right Mm -hmm. but the best ones right now are tied to a company that has some decision making that that we're not 100 percent comfortable with right and surveillance state type stuff like uh exactly (laughs) and so he's making this argument well if if you know how to use this other thing then you're free but you have to go out of your way to learn how to use it. It's not going to be as convenient. Right, yeah. right. And that's sort of like the same sort of argument that you get with these other products. I like where the messaging can reflect our world, but not hit you over the head with, I'm talking about this. You know, not not so obvious. It's more, more in reflection where it's like, you know, I could kind of make that parallel. 
people say, oh, it's just fiction, just stories. Well, stories are how we learn and decide what we believe in, what we want to do and things like that. So that's, that's cool. Getting deep today, Paul. We Love are. It. It's, it's the face-to-face -face aspect of, of recording in the studio, probably. All right. So we've talked a little bit about Aldani. Interesting to know, you know, Skiing is a, is a prisoner from multiple jails. Sort of like the backstory with Andor, where he describes his history as a fighter. And Luthen is like, you were a cook and you ran away, but you survived. So you get, you know, partial credit. You know, he's like, I can see you're a prisoner. And Skeen's like, where did you do time? He's like, well, actually, I was in juvie. So it's like every time he says something, it's like, well, you know, it's not ideal, but it's giving me street cred. But if you dig a little, it's not exactly what I was saying. It's another callback to the Matrix. There's that line where you have to fight someone before you truly know them. <laughs> right. And so these guys have fought each other and they've now come on the other end of it. And you know, they're bros now. They're big time bros. Do you have any more on Aldani? I mean, not really. I thought it was cool that their campsite was a mock-up of the target. I didn't catch that before. And he was like, okay, look, that was smart. Smart. And the models, you know, so much care was put into making them. You can tell that when Nemec dies, it's going to just rip our guts out because he's, he's really been like the heart of this group. He's put so much care into why he's there, what he's doing, taking care of everybody else, um, making sure they're prepared. It's really obvious he's going to die unless the writers try to pull something on us because everybody knows that, you know. <laughs> I've not seen anyone predict that he's going to survive the attack. No. Like I said before, the Gorn stuff, the, you know, the, the lost love, all that stuff. Um, when you, once you find out that he loved an indigenous person and that ended badly, we're not 100% sure what badly means, but, you know, in the Empire way of thinking, she's probably a goner. But then you, the little scenes were like the Imperials are doing target practice on the little stone chapel, or they're referring to the way that they smell and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and he's kind of gritting his teeth and barking out Imperial shit back at them. But now you know. You always have to demonize the people you're oppressing and make them. It out helps. To be I mean, it helps. Got it. Than human. It, it's yeah. in the book, right? <laughs> yeah, it's in the playbook. And so the fact that they brought that in, I thought was was good writing. Uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, Mon Mothma and her bit. I, I kind of did and kind of didn't need to see the dinner with Sly Moore, mostly because this is a character, a legacy character from the movies. She has been on the dais with Palpatine and Mazameda before. There's only three people on the dais. So this third person that we know as movie viewers almost nothing about. She's been expanded on in, I guess, books and comics and stuff like that. But if you're not totally down for that stuff, all you know is there's this very important person that was in a political enemy's house, Mon Mothma's. I kind of wanted to know how that went down. I didn't know much about that character and I kind of learned a little bit. And now it's like Darth Maul stole her from her homeworld, kidnapped her, and then Palpatine then pretended to rescue her. Like, yeah, that's perfect Palpatine. And then essentially they had a love child together. There's a Triclops. Whoa. Dude's got like a third eye. And I'm like, oh, bring him in. That sounds like, <laughs> like this weird Sith with like a third. Like, I'm like, okay, this, I'm in. Whoa, I had no idea, Sly, you dog. <laughs> Leave us. <laughs> Good one. Exactly. We're going to get down. Yeah, I guess that's it for Mon Mothma. I guess I did want to know how that dinner went, but I guess it's not important in the overall scheme. Just know that her husband created this highly uncomfortable situation. He's not on board. And so what's going to happen with them? Yeah, it, it, it set up the fact that he's down with those folks and she she's not. And then now he hears this thing about the foundation and that's something's going to come of that. 
Exactly. Is he going to start poking around in there? Does that make him vulnerable? Not that anyone would miss him if she needed to have him done away with, but that exit from proper public life as a senator transitioning to rebel leader 100%, we know has to happen. It's way too early for that to happen, but we're starting to see those building blocks of how she can get there. Let's go talk about Cyril Karn, former deputy inspector, part-time super low-level resident of Coruscant. I saw on uh, someone's summary video, they pointed out that the sunlight that reflects on his face in his quarters is probably not direct sunlight. It's probably reflecting off of another shinier building and coming down into the depths. These scenes are painful to watch. I, I kind of amend my my story last week where I was like, I was thinking, well, maybe he wanted a job with the Empire and it didn't quite work out. So he goes and gets the best thing he can, but it's off planet. I'm thinking now you want to get the F away from mom. For sure. <laughs> yeah, this is he's just in uh, the seventh circle of hell right now, <laughs> eating with his blue milk Cocoa Puffs and all this. Yeah. Yeah. That looked like maybe tricks or something. But yeah. The blue milk was, they put the camera on it. Hey, look at that blue milk. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the most fan service we're going to get in this show, I think, <laughs> is uh, blue milk. Who is Uncle Harlow? You think he works for the Empire? I do. Yeah. I do. In what aspect? I don't know. that the, the fact that he had any commentary on Cyril's aptitude for police work is the only little bit of information we got about him. There's also the aspect of Cyril thinking that they've had such little contact with Harlow ever since something. Why would he even take mom's call? Maybe he was on their level and became a big deal. Not so big a deal that he can move them out of the, the lower levels of Coruscant. But, you know, he's doing fine for himself. He can put your name at the head of the line in HR. And that does spell empire to me. The biggest employer out there. Exactly. And That's what I'm need, trying to say. Yeah, biggest employer. And we need him in, back in the game. Because if he's going to be the arch nemesis or come back up in the story with Andor, that would be convenient. He's the tree. He remembers. His, oh. He's living with mom, the seventh level of hell, like you just said. Because the axe just screwed up his life and, and left. He doesn't care anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't, he can't think of that guy's face. He just took his gun and left, you know, or maybe he didn't, but still you get the idea. Like he doesn't care, but here he is living with mom in his room with his action figures on the desk. That's his personal rebellion. As, as said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How he figures in, I mean, obviously he's, he's going to come gunning for him, but it, the timing's not quite right yet. So is it like he's going to make it a personal vendetta type aspect where he's going to make his way on his own to try to find him? Or does Harlow install him in some position where he can do that quasi officially still yet to be seen? I'm super curious because they spent three or four scenes on it mm -hmm. of, of the same flavor scene where we just get this idea like this mom does want the best for him. It's just the way she gets there. Oh man, that would be terrible to live with. Gonna be cool. Okay, so my big high points for this episode go back to just the levels of characterization. Even though some characters didn't get a lot of screen time, we did get their names mentioned or we did get them on screen just a little bit to see what they did. You know, not so much Tamarin, not so much Cinta this time around. Tamarin, for instance, it seems like he knows how to run the drills for them to a certain extent. But not knowing about having your firing arm on the outside of the formation and getting called out on it 
and not being a dick about it, just being like, hey, let's, 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 okay, fine. Maybe did he serve a little while or was he maybe in like a, I don't know, a volunteer unit? How does he know this stuff? He's a little bit of a curiosity, but I still think he's dead meat. Cinta, I don't even know if she spoke this week. Yeah, we have a mystery. Like they're going off, Vel and Cinta, as part of the mission plan. They're yeah. going off to do something. I don't think we know what that is, right? No. If those four guys are going to be in disguise, trying to mix in with the garrison, then I would assume that they need to be going in underground, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get into the base some other way. Maybe meeting up with Gorn and he'll let them in and then they'll... Right. If they, yeah. They're going to be like Shawshank and their way in there, you know, like sewers or mm-hmm. access tunnels, maintenance tunnels, something like that. Nice reference, Paul. Right. Because yeah, they need to be on that ship when it leaves. Maybe they've got to sabotage something. Maybe oh, they, they did say Gorn will be in the front. So yeah, so he he won't, yeah, they'll have to, maybe he'll leave a door open or something like that. Do something with power, security, something. They've got to do something to that level so that the guys in disguise can do their thing and not get caught right away. That's my guess. But they didn't, they didn't really tell us. They said, it's not for you to know. And we're with Team Andor, so I guess we don't get to know. Uh, low points, just that there was no action, but I'm not a baby. I can wait. One more episode. <laughs> High, low, favorite for you, Mark? I mean, we've pretty much touched on it all. I liked the feuding happening. I liked the politicking. I liked the setup, the tension building, the sort of PTSD analogy situation, the depth that's being created in the story. Um, but yeah, I'm, re- I'm ready for the action. I really am. Let's do this thing, Paul. Episode six. Right now, I'm predicting Nemec, Tamarin, Vel, Cinta. I think they're all probably dead. Oh. Both girls, big guy, mouse. I think they're I could dead. see just Skeen and Andor surviving. Yeah. And their bros. Yeah. That's interesting. I'll go with you on that prediction, but I think these writers are intentionally trying to make mix things up. We will uh, have to look forward to our follow-up for next episode, The Attack on the Garrison at Aldani, and we'll see how it shakes out. Like you mentioned originally, these are shot by the same director over spans of three episodes, so I wouldn't totally expect that that attack and escape should spill over into episode seven. I think everything that's going to happen is going to happen. Wrap up. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then we're what? Halfway through the season. Halfway through the season. We've got to uh, probably meet up with Luthen again, get our bearings, figure out our loyalties, et cetera, et cetera. So super looking forward to how that goes down. If people wanted to find you on social media, where would they look, Mark? Jiggy Nut, Twitter. And I am at Paul V. Daily or Pod Clubhouse on Twitter. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to hearing any feedback from anybody about anything on this podcast. Just let us know. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.